Welcome to the Hyperwap Podcast, episode four. Aiden, how we doing? Doing great, dude. It's good to have you back, Allie. Yeah, great to be back in action. Um, we had a great end to the week last week and some like really exciting startup calls in. Um, and it feels like we're pushing through. We're, we're finalizing this fundraising process, trying to close the last couple checks. But I feel like that's like the boring business part of this whole thing. Now we're back to what we want to do, meeting with companies, scheming with founders, deciding how we're going to deploy that capital. Um, and yeah, it's exciting. And so I'm, I'm, I feel like we're turning this new leaf on the new chapter of the fund. And it's honestly been sub- very surprised props to you at the deal flow and the calls you set up <laughs> like, in a good way. <laughs> well, yeah, we had an awesome call last week, which I feel like I had to kind of push you to get on the call. You were like asking a bunch of questions and I could see you get more and more excited. So I was like, yes, like I'm, I'm so hyped that like it went well and to see you get stoked like that. And I, it's just like, it's fun switching gears now to like what matters, which is the founders. And I feel like I've been always meeting with founders, but now it's like when you have a fund, it's like, you're able to really kind of like, like, you know, like put those conversations in hyperdrive, um, and really kind of reach out to people, set up meetings and they're willing to talk to you. Yeah. And it's, I love the fact that we're being with companies that are at like this critical stage where it feels like our capital really matters. And like, it's a key, we can be a key partner. Like that's kind of been exciting. Um, and yeah, that call we had last week was awesome. It was like the first thing I was thinking is like, damn, the website's not looking that dope. And then like, that was the first thing he said. He's like, I know our website sucks. And I was like, okay, you're just, we're getting, <laughs> like, we're making moves. Um, but yeah, and it got me thinking of like, how do we create a standardized process? Because like, when you look at a public company, there's the SEC filings, there's, you know, gap accounting for revenue, there's quarterly revenue. Like it's a very systematic, transparent process, probably way overburdening companies on how much they have to report and all that stuff. Um, but so, and then you go to the private companies pitching you and it's like, everybody's got their own metrics. They're telling one company's telling you nothing about financials. The other company is showing you way too much about monthly financials and you can't zoom out. And so how do we start to like, what I've been realizing is I want to have like a form, like I, at least whether the startup tells us it, or we create it internally, we have like a fact sheet. That's like a, a, a sports card for that startup, like year founded founders, uh, sector, like revenue, the biggest innovation that I think is like, this is like big breakthrough. If we could just get the, st- the revenue of the startup that we're listening to from 2020, 2021 to 2022 projected, you just tell us those numbers. We're already halfway through most startup pitches because you like, there are like, so, and I, I've been thinking about beyond that metric, how can we take this? like processification sort of to the next level. So, so I'm curious, like, so I think there's so many, so much data that a startup can give you that like, doesn't matter. And how do you like weed through the chaff and figure out like, okay, it's revenue. Like that's the most important thing, but it's not always like uh, one size fits all, you know, for like a deep tech hardware company that might not be profitable for a long time, you know, like the, there, there might not be revenue for a long time. So it's like, how, how do you, how do you think about that? Um, and obviously that'll be on a case by case basis, but I think that like kind of bleeds into like there, it depends on the type of company too. Yeah. And we've invested in companies that have revenue that are just about to start making revenue that don't have revenue for three years because they're doing hard deep tech and they're super early stage. So we see all that. But I think the transparency of, I don't want to know what the startup founder thinks I want to know. I want to know the facts. And then I can, I know your business model is super hard. So I don't care that you don't have revenue for three years. Like I can, I want to assume that myself. I don't want the startup founder to like, um, 
Yeah, and I just think it cuts through the noise because I think, like you said, there's a lot of metrics and even the startup founders themselves many times are not astute investors. Like their job isn't to look at startups or invest in public companies. So they're not used to framing their investor relations story the way that those good investors are used to reading it. And so I, the big, my favorite companies are like when we almost start helping them with their investor relations on the call. Cause I think that's even bigger than our media component. Um, I see like being able to give investor relations advice behind closed door, adding way more value than like mentioning them on the show, which they don't, nobody understands yet. But I just think like, that's what I help Tesla with. That's what I want to like, you know, when we talk about these other startups, I feel like our, our most value long-term is like, how do we tell your story and help? So, um, yeah, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked, but I'm, I'm curious. Cause I think what you're saying is like the biggest thing that we can help do is help craft like so when you join a company so early on seed stage investment right it's like the the biggest next milestone for them to keep going is like can they raise a series a round and getting that story in a way getting the company starting to move in a way that it's like this is investable this is what we can do with a round capital so a lot of what we have to do is be like this is what we need to focus on we need to work to getting this done and if we can tell this story and show progress moving towards that story then we can raise an a round and keep the momentum going but i'm curious like for you like is revenue like the most important metric like when you see a deck like just tell me what the numbers are and how they're increasing like is that where you always go galley yeah well i i love this is actually from mo one of the co-founder of hypercharts with me he had this quote that was like revenue is like a tangible number of the value you're providing to the world and you get that back in terms of revenue dollars. However much it costs you to get that revenue is a whole nother discussion. But from a super high level, it's like how much value are giving to the world? A million bucks worth, 10 million bucks worth? Is that going up or down? That already gives you so much insight into what is happening and is often like hidden and obscured within the startup deck. So I think that's like off top revenue. And then the second way I start thinking about it is like cash in the bank and burn. So like how much money, like, like all this, the SaaS multiple thing, like you should be spending $1 to get $1 in SaaS revenue, like that, those kind of things start to thinking about, okay, once we realize how much revenue you're getting, what's the quality of that revenue and how much is it costing you to get that revenue and how many years out are, are we towards seeing that revenue become profitable? And then that's like this whole flow of how the, the system works. And then, um, yeah. And I think that this kind of like narrative, the arc, which is the story of how you commercialize your vision and the way that arc is tied to the financials is kind of like what I want to understand for each company. And it starts with revenue and then it goes into like burn, uh, projections, cash on hand, that kind of stuff. T totally. And e for each business, it's going to look like very different. And one thing that I kind of learned recently in the book, the power law, it's like a book about VC and it talks about there's like technical risk and there's market risk. And sometimes for the, when there's the most technical risk, there's the least amount of market risk. So if you think about a business like SpaceX or, or Tesla, when you're pioneering like a new technology, there's a lot of upfront capital to get things technically right and do that. But then there's like this exponential scale for how you can ad like address the market. And so I'm like super interested in businesses where they can, they're, creating true value to society technically, and they're starting to overcome those hurdles. And then it's just about getting it to the, 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 the businesses or the people to be able to, to, to use their invention. Yeah, that's really, and it's like, uh, like space startups, like SpaceX, it's like, it's their, like they're their own biggest competition in some ways, you know, it's like, can you make the technology good enough so people can use it? Nobody else is doing like this kind of stuff. Um, like that's what I think about Bumblebee spaces, you know, like one of our portfolio companies that we did an SPV for like really cool, like 
bed in the ceiling, like all this crazy robotic smart home technology, like nobody's really doing that in the same way they are at all. It's all about like, can they provide enough value to the customer and make their product good enough to integrate it into someone's lifestyle? Like once they get that tech thing solved. So, um, yeah, I think that's a really cool cool way to look at it. But I I think that's like an important point about Bumblebee or whatever, SpaceX, whatever it is, is, okay, is this technical problem that they're solving, like the, the revenue might not be there for it yet, right? Like, it's like, okay, like this is super early, but can you justify that this has been in, like, so it's so, the tech is so superior, this is going to provide so much value that the market is eventually going to catch up to its value that they provided in their like lab or their R&D workshop. And like figuring that out is like, that's like what we're in the business of doing. I feel like it's like, how can you and I go find entrepreneurs who feel like they have created some advantage of building something that's truly unique. And I think that goes back to this idea of like, we're not looking to fund PowerPoint decks. We're looking for people who are like building tangible things who can get their hands dirty. They're like coding it up themselves, hardwiring it themselves. That's what we want to fund. And I also have this theory that like comps are BS, like this entire theory of like comparable companies to me is very like flawed. And like, I never, I just don't believe it. I believe every company is a unique entity and like has just very different financial arcs and narrative arcs and execution risks. And their real only competition is themselves. And I think the second you start doing comps and the second a founder's like, well, this company that's doing the same thing as us is valued at this revenue multiple. So we're going to be valued at that. Rev-. It's like, you know, Tesla's valued, re- but what about Ford's revenue multiple? It's what Ford doesn't build anything. They outsource everything. They're just a logo with MBAs. Like Tesla owns factories across the world. Like this is a very different entity. And even though what they look like, they might sell at the end is the same. And it's like, so, uh, I don't know that's one big difference that I kind of take is like every company is just a unique story by itself in a box and don't get lost in the sauce with comps because when you have the second you assume by the entire philosophy of a comparable company is flawed because you're assuming that the market is always rational with the last valuation or price of the comparable company. So you assume that the market's not being rational about the company you're investing in because it's underpriced, but you're assuming it is rational about the company you want because that's the valuation that makes sense for the math in your head. So it's just one big like convincing yourself game like and it relies on this extremely flawed theory that the market is always irrational like you would that's why everybody funded these SaaS companies at 100 times revenue because they were look, like look at the comps well zooms at 30 times and they're only growing 70 percent. so we're going to be at you know 300 times because we're at 700 percent, even though it's off a small base and then it's like your growth shrinks zoom multiple shrinks and then it all goes to shit because you comped yourself to an irrational moment and so that's why rivian uh like all these hardware companies that are comped to rivian it's like Rivian is way overvalued. So you assume that Rivian's rational and that's why we've had a massive overfunding of all what are going to be really shitty hardware businesses because they got comp to something. So that's a sidetrack too, but um yeah, I'm dying on that hill of like comps are just like like yeah. So I'm I'm curious when you're thinking about the fund galley and and the type of founders you want to back, the type of startups that you want to invest in, what gets you super excited? What who are you looking for? What type of companies? Like, I want. I want to hear what yeah. your heads out with this. I mean, I don't want to say the companies we're meeting with because I don't think we're supposed to. But yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. Uh, not, specific, not specifically the companies, but just like, like, okay, you have this capital that you like. 
now you're, you're leveraged. You, you, you built this platform. Like what's your dream? Like what type of startups are you looking for in like a perfect world? What do you want to solve? What do you want to work on? Like what, what's the type of stuff you want to fund? Like right now we have a blank slate, you know, like it feels like it's like it could, the, the companies yeah. we could back could be a wide spectrum. You know, it's like people are, are trusting us to invest in the future. That's going to make the world a better place. Like, what are you looking for? Well, I, I just keep thinking of the call we had Friday because it checks a lot of the boxes of like a founder very passionately trying to like build a different future than exists in the world in like a really big way. Like they, that's like the first thing I look for. It's like you as a founder, if we're investing in these like big venture back companies that want to get really big and have a big impact, I need to like get sold that the vision, it's like the Peter Thiel thing, like contrary and like you got to like see something that nobody else sees before they see it. That's how you get alpha. And so I think like, these founders that have a unique, that are tackling, and it's like a scale. It's like we have these industries that are the biggest problems. I would say like food production, like plastics, like energy. Like we know these are really big problems. So I wanna find these entrepreneurs who have like gone zero to one enough to where they've proven they can have a, they like whatever their thing is working. And then they have this totally different vision for how that supply chain or industry works. And that's what gets me excited because that's like the whole point of what we're doing is to like hyper change these industries. And so, um, and I guess that seems simple at a high level, but a lot of founders where I struggle to get excited and invest, it's like, well, it's like, I'm always like, give me more, like, give me more of the vision. Like, where does this go? Like, and if they don't have that painting in their head for 10 years out, exactly what their company looks like, then I just don't think they have the clarity and vision to pull it off. Like if, if you're a CEO and I, I, there's so many examples I'm thinking of, but it's like, how much money do you need to get to profitability? What does your company look like in 10 years if everything goes right? And if you start stumbling on those questions and don't have that vision, then you're not thinking 10 years out. Then you're not prepared to build a decade-long, you know, game-changing company. And so um, that's – yeah. And then, like, I mean, my one of my favorite things is, like, the give-a-shit factor is, like – um, like as much as you and me are trying to identify companies and industries that have problems already that we want to fix, we're also like, I also want the founder to sell me on a problem. I doesn't, I don't know exists that, that they're obsessed with. And that's kind of what gets me stoked is like these founders who just nerd out and are obsessed with it are solving their own problems and have kind of solved it in a really tiny way. And it's just ready to take the solution global. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious what, how, how would you, how would you answer the same question? Yeah, well, there's three things that you said that really stuck out to me. One is like that crystal clear view of like the future 10 years out, like long-term thinking, like clarity of vision. And it shows like the scale and impact of like, if this works and this goes right, what does that look like? You know, like that's like a, a big thing of what you said. And then like the personal antidote, like why is this person uniquely suited to solve this problem? Like why, why is this person perfect? Did they just come up with this idea? Like a few months ago because they were looking for something to start or is this like something that like they live and breathe that they're going to work on this for 10 years and even if it fails they're just dedicated to this they're like hyper obsessed like you know you look for that type of like dedication and obsession and then the, the third thing that you said is like okay so we want to back these companies predominantly at like seed stage right we want to be some of the first money in at the believe in founders before anyone else does right and it's like during that time how can we get see their business kind of go from zero to one, like f kind of find a little bit of product market fit, showing that it works. And then how can we work with them to kind of show where like, like the cannon's gonna go and shoot to, you know, like where they do the series A, how they scale this. So it's like, that's like our sweet spot of operating is, okay, you've proven it works. You've shown like the, the beta, beta, beta phase of what you're building. And now it's like, how can we position this in the way to show like, like the, the open, 
land grab of what you're going to do? How can we paint the picture for other investors, for other employees? How can we tell your story? Now that we've shown this, we can do this. And yeah, like that's what gets me super excited. Um, but when I think about the companies yeah. that I'm super, inter super interested in funding, it's like, I, I keep coming back to like real tangible value. Like is the underlying thing you're doing valuable to our species? You know, it's like people get so caught up in like, oh, it's, there's a huge market for this, or it's a better product for that. But it's like, I think if you focus on like the true value of what it brings um, to our planet, then it's like the market's gonna work. The business is gonna work, you know? Like you're gonna find a way. It's like, but if you technically can develop something that no one's like d done before, if you're working on like a nuclear reactor or electric airplane, or like a way to optimize human health and monitor all your organs or whatever it is, it's like, like these are things that our species need, and then it's just figuring out the business model, working with them to get it there, and scaling it. Yeah, and you what, you made me have uh, something else come to mind, which is focus. Like that's another really important thing I look for in founders. Like how focused are they on their company and problem? Like honestly, a, a test I'll sometimes do. It's like mention some dope angel investment to a founder. Are they interested? Are they angel investing? Like that's a huge red flag if your founder gives a shit about angel investing. Like. Elon Musk does not give a shit about angel investing. Like you should be so focused on your company that you have equity in that's going to go up a thousand X that no angel investing matters and all your money should be tied into your company. Like I do not like, maybe if you're like a 45 year old founder who already sold their first company and now you're like homies with everyone in Silicon Valley and you're just dabbling with angel checks. Okay. Like I'm going to let that slide. But if you're like a not never been successful founder and you're also dabbling, like that's just one really like red flag I have. It's like, and that goes back to the thing of focus. Like if you're not obsessed and focused on this, then like, and you're already and that, what does that show you? If you're looking at angel investing, it already shows you that you're looking for a plan B to make money. And I don't want founders who have a plan B. I want founders who just have one plan and like give a shit about nothing else. There's nothing that makes me more stoked than me telling a founder, I'm like, oh, actually you should meet this company. And I made, did a couple of times, not even thinking about it. And I was like, you dude, you should really meet this company. They like also worked for Tesla or whatever and like are doing this crazy thing that you're gonna love. And they're like, whatever, I'm too busy. And I'm like, wow, you just passed a thousand X opportunity and didn't even blink once and don't give a shit. Like, I love this. Like you are focused and you know that your stock is gonna go up a thousand X so you don't care. And like that, I, I just like, yeah. So that's another kind of like lens. I like to look through it. Yeah. The laser focus and, and self-belief, uh, I think like that, like confidence and conviction that someone has in themselves that this is going to work in the future is just like, it's, it's super hard to quantify this when someone says that they like, it's the X factor that you and I talk about, like, does, does this, is this person have the X factor? And like, how do you find people with the X factor? And sometimes it's like what you said, it's like, we might not know the businesses that need to be changed or the industries that need to be changed, but it's like, but this person is freaking passionate about solving something and they have the X factor to solve it. And I don't know half the shit they're saying, but I believe that this person's going to figure it out, you know, and I'm, I'm I want to learn and roll up my sleeves. Yeah. And that's, and then I, I think that's like part of it, but then it's like, okay, well, we need to start getting smart about how to validate those. And that's why I always like to be the potential customer of whatever we're investing in, because totally. that just gives me insane insight on how to evaluate like the industry dynamics and, and that. And if they don't, it's like, 
and it's just a tricky world because it's like, all right, if you're invest, like no VC can be an expert in every industry they're funding. It's just like, unless you're super narrow VC. And even then it's like, like a space VC, like all these people running space VCs are like, went to business school. Like they're not engineers. They don't even, I've never even worked at a space company. They're just focused on space. Like I'm convinced they know nothing, you know? And so and you can't, the- but, but you, but you can't be a customer in everything too. Like there's businesses that are like B2B, you know, or like, True. It's like- but you can be a customer of their customer. So there's like ways to do that. And then it's like, yeah. So I guess that's actually one part as an investor that I'm trying to get better at. It's like, if I'm not a customer, how do I do it? But also like just a big layer of skepticism over businesses where I'm not going to be a customer. And like, this is probably not in our sweet spot if we just can't understand it. And it's deep tech. And like, it relies on you making like 10 scientific breakthroughs before you get revenue in a field that I don't know about. Like that's less. But if it's like, wait, like this company that I know that's a leader in their field is already paying you for your thing and it's working really well and consumers are loving that product. Okay, well now we start to build up evidence for this. And then I also think our like network of people we know, which is growing really well, like that is something I've noticed as well. It's like usually like maybe if I don't know them, like I'm a call away from somebody who's an expert in that industry and like can give me like the gossip or whatever about that company. And I found that is just so useful like relying on other people's expertise. And so I'm also curious, like, how do you see yourself? How do you like to work with founders? Like you've built up like every single deal that we did through HyperGuap, like you've, you've scouted for us, Gally, you've built up these founder relationships for years. Like how, what's your preferential? Like when founders want to work with us, like how should they expect to work with us? How do you work with founders? How do you want to work with founders going forward? What do you see that like in the future? And then like, yeah, I'm just like curious the type of dynamics that you see. Cause yeah. I, I have some thoughts on this. I have some thoughts on this. I think we're super efficient with time and we always respect the founder's time and we do what we say we're going to do. And these are like the blocking and tackling of VC and all the good VCs are doing that. But like, I, like that to me is like layer one. It's like, we only take a little bit of time. We've already done a lot of homework before we meet with you. Like we say, we're going to do this amount of money. Like we always underestimate for doing an SPV. We've never come short on an SPV ever. I've n- we've never told a founder 500. Okay. Shit. It's only 400. Like we always underestimate and play that game. And so, and I've been hearing a lot of feedback from founders. It's like every other SPV doesn't do that and always over promises under deliver. We're getting rep for under promising over delivering. So I think that's huge. But I also like, like to me, that's really at the end of the day, I'm an investor. Like if, if I was a founder thinking about why I want HyperGuap, it's like, okay, they're easy to work with. They're fun to work with. They are going to wire me money when they ask them. And I get Gally and Aiden on the cap table scheming for me. And these are like smart, well-connected people who are invested. They're going to stand by me when shit hits the fan. Like I can count on them to like, you know, bounce ideas around um, and like call for advice. And I don't know. I also think that like, I don't want to over, like, I think there's, and then we'll talk about you on the podcast and that's all good. But I feel like I, if I was really building a company, I would want investors who get it, who think long-term, who are stand by their word and don't bother me. And I think those are like our biggest value adds is we, I, I am a founder. We started HyperCharts with 500 bucks and sold it for a couple million. So I get it. I started HyperChange. We're starting HyperGwap. Like I don't, you, you don't want to deal with investors unless you need them. And so a lot of the times it's like, hit us up when you need us and they'll hit us up. And honestly, like, that's one thing I'm getting better at. It's like, ooh, we need a head of this sort of battery module design. It's like, shit, like, I don't, I'll tweet it, but like, 
I'm not going to be able to help you get that higher. Like it's, and usually I found the most value adds for us is like being just a really good investor. And then it comes outside of the box and we're not expecting like some VC that we're talking to, which is just happening now behind the scenes really wants to get in touch with one of our companies and bam, we make that connection. Like they didn't ask for that, but all of a sudden that turns out to be a huge win. One of my homies wants is trying to get a job and finds your company and all of a sudden we help them get hired. So, and, it, and it's, um, I almost feel like we get people hired at companies when they don't ask for it. When they ask for it, it's always hard. Cause it's like, I would also say like, this is one thing that I'm, I love with founders. Uh, and I kind of like, is if I have a relationship where, uh, I can be super honest and tell them that their product sucks and all the way it sucks. And I think a lot of people like just maybe beat around the bush or just don't do that. But that's one thing I learned like with Elon Musk, it's like, he doesn't give a shit about praise. He wants to know what's wrong, critical feedback that's thoughtful from people who understand the product and what they're doing. And those are the founders I want to work with. And like, that's where I feel like my, like, I don't mind. I don't know. I think sometimes I can come off as like rude or a little like off the cuff or a little like too blunt, but I think that's just the founder reacting into the moment to a harsh truth. Nobody else has the, like, is willing to tell them. And that's why like that punch hurt a little hard because it was real. Everyone's thinking it and you know, nobody said it, but you were thinking it cause you're the founder and you know, so all the time the founder's like, shit, you're right. I've been thinking about that. And like, I appreciate you telling me that. So, um, and how I think, they like, react, to, but how they react to that galley, like how they react to the cold heart feedback tells you everything you need to know, you know, like. Are that do they take that cool, like that feedback and are they defensive or are they like constructive? Like, tell me more. I have more questions. It's like, talk through this, you know, like how, how big is their ego? How, you know, in that yeah. phase? And you can get so much insight on like, if, is this person like stoked that they want to talk through the product and figure out their flaws or are they defensive and they see this confrontational and like, to me, it's like, that's such a good sign of if this founder is going to be a working, good working relationship. And I feel like almost every, I actually can never think of a founder getting mad. Like every single founder that I've, that we have takes it so well, maybe because we're good at, I'm good at being like, they get galleys coming from a good place, but like, they just take it really well. And, um, there's the one answer that I get a lot, which actually like totally get like pisses me off sometimes. It's like, oh, well we did a study. It's like, well, why do you have so much stevia in your thing? It tastes way too sweet. Everyone in our generation hates sugar. Stevia gives me a headache and it tastes whack and I don't want sweetness. And it just tastes like I'm over sugaring and everything has stevia. And they're like, well, we thought the same thing, but our customer survey says we wanted stevia. So it's like, you haven't even put out your product and you're already just like squishing your vision to what some dumbass focus group told you. Like that, you do not have the stamina and fortitude to go all the way. Like you need to know why you're doing stuff in your product. You can't be asking other people before you get like that. You know, it's the simple Steve Jobs thing. You gotta show people what they want. If I asked him, it was a faster horse. Like that is so, that's such a powerful insight. And so when I see a founder that like, if I push back on why they do this and they have some sort of like, well, it wasn't my idea. It was this person's idea. It's like, so you're not even running the company. You don't even have the vision. You don't even have the, like, you know, the, the courage to say, this is how the product's going to be. And we're going to put it out and it's going to do well, your art. So that's like a, that's like a, I'm, I'm thinking of a way to coin that new metric, like confidence and vision. Like how much confidence do you have in your vision? Like Elon Musk was like, we're building this electric car, 300 miles of range, 10 years, billions of dollars, but people are going to buy it. If you build it, they will come, even though everybody says nobody wants an electric car. So those are the founder. I kind of love that, like, push when you push back against the founder, like you're saying, like, it's really fun to see. They react to it. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and actually, the last note on that is I think most VCs and investors, like, love to be nice. 
and like they are kind of in this like business mode and i think one thing that i learned from studying tesla and just being a no bullshit person in general is like there's limited time and we got to move fast and like bullshitting and being nice gets nobody anywhere so like let's just like say the truth off top right away and that's the fastest way that's like the zero to one first principles fastest way to progress and innovation so that's why like we need to do that well, they might like being nice in the short term until they have to be freaking assholes in the, in the long run because sh like shit's in the fan, you know? And they yeah, gotta, like, so it's like, are you really being nice? Or are you just like waiting to like things get hard and you have to deal with things? But so I also, I, I think like you're talking about kind of like a hands-off approach to founders, but I, one thing that I've been thinking a lot too, is like sometimes for these like really early stage companies, pre-seed, seed, like they they just need all hands on deck. Like they need people who could work for free. You know what I mean? And like as a VC, like you become incentivized to like support them. And like, I don't want to promise anything and like over, but it's like, dude, I want to, I like see myself as like an operator. Like if there's a founder that needs help with sales or they need help with like strategizing on the pitch deck and coming up with the story, it's like, that's the type of stuff that I, I, I want to help with. You know, is like rolling up my sleeves, like connecting with the founder, like and being like in the arena with them at the earliest stages. And and like you might say like that's a double edged sword. Like, oh, if they need a VC to come in and help them, like should we really be backing that company? It's like, okay, but what if I could come in and help them and it could like help things, you know? And so it's like I, I, so in that book, The Power Law of VC, which is super interesting, it talked about two different types of uh, VC styles from Kleiner Perkins, like back in the day for their first fund in Sequoia, their first fund, Don Valentine. And it talked about how they worked with like, uh, the guys at Atari, how they worked with the, the team at Apple, how involved they got, um, and stuff like that. And super interesting case studies on VC startup relationships. But for some of them, like the VCs, they were like the, the main business guy that came in and helped did sales, helped reposition the model, said that Atari should go to homes directly to expand the market outside of these like arcade areas. Like if there's, they help structure the, the the acquisition for forty million dollars, which is like a, a 10x on their on their first fund for um, for one of their investments. So it's like all these different things where it's like, okay, I like I I personally identify as an operator. Like I don't see myself in my career sitting back. So it's like I'm super stoked about the idea of like founders companies that I believe in that I see myself like going to the lab or the office, whatever they're doing and being like, what do you guys need help with? What are you thinking through that no one's hoping you think through right now? Like, let's talk that through. Like, oh, you need help implementing this? Like, let me see if I can work on this for you. Like, I mm -hmm. like want to be the type of VC that's like, like the guy who like rolls up their sleeve and like helps them get it done. Like, let me, you know what? I've been networking with a ton of VCs. Let me make a ton of warm intros for you. Let me see if I can help. Like, I just, like, I just think at the earliest stages, they need the most help. And if that's where we're going to operate, like that's where we need to be the most helpful. Yeah. And I think you're actually good at that because there are a lot of cases of like, yeah, well, we're working on with our portfolio companies to get like a focus group. I think that's one of our like super core competencies is like we get like we'll run a syndicate deal for you. We get your super LPs. That's a focus group for like early product launches, super fans, helping spread the word and helping the company engage with those people has been a super kind of like value add that they all like that you're running. So I I'm like that I feel like is a sweet because it's like, OK, Andreessen is going to help you with HR or whatever, like all these big companies and they just have more money. They're just been at it for longer. So they're building up more in-house stuff to offer to their startups. Mm -hmm. And I think um, in some ways we can we almost have a different value add because we're a different type of VC firm, which is the help, which is the community and this grassroots like LP super LPs. So I think that is 
like when you talk about the you know the overused value add term that's it and i like like i love what you're saying about it but i've noticed naturally like this is my style maybe just because i've i'm like more of an out there creative just go like i need to be like inspired to do something so you being like go, help, like help hire this guy it's like okay like i'm i don't have any head hunting connections like i'm not wasting like eight hours like i just don't have the time like we have too many companies but i've noticed that just like i don't know if this makes sense but it's like you they ask asking us doesn't usually come out with something like it can come out with something good but for me personally it's when it just comes up and i reach out and i'm like watching from afar and it's like fuck guys like this is what we got to do like i see your inventory stacking up i see we need to move this product i know how to do it i know the customer to call like like let's just get this you need to fire that person like bam and i'll just come in and like and like moves have been made and then like amazing value add and I think that's a, like, that's a great point. Like sometimes the founder might come to you and you're like, okay, I just like not really sure how much value I can provide here. But it's like, you know what, you know better than anyone else what you can provide. So it's like yeah. when, when, when you see something in the business, it's like, I can help here. And then you can tell them, they're like, oh, wait, we didn't even know you could help with this or could do this. They like, and that's like the most value. It's like, it's something that they didn't even think of they needed. And then you go and like solve a problem they didn't even identify yet that they had. You know, they couldn't even yeah. figure it out. Or like Twitter, like I want to tweet about my companies when they're doing cool stuff. And then that always gets them a ton of free Twitter clout that would cost like a huge amount to pay for and buy. And it's amazing branding. And it's just like so powerful and just like, and like, that's my sweet spot. So I almost think of it, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic of like, I kind of think we overcorrected to the like VC should help you do everything, call them when you need them to like get, like we want to be with Andreessen because they are way better at helping you in certain areas than we are. So it's the dream team is like us tripling down on the ways we can help you that we know we're good at, not trying to replicate what these other big funds are doing in-house with just way more money. And so I, I think it's it's cool to see VCs hone into their value add in different ways and like make sure it's complementary to the other one. Like I, I also think that we've been through a bull market and the ability to like stand by a company when shit hits the fan is like something that I like that was, you know, Tesla was so, it was just so relentless, so much, we're about to be bankrupt, so much hate and just like standing by the company then, I think that's going to be a big value add that Hyperguap has um, that will take time to play out because I just think a lot of, frankly, the VCs who are our age and are new haven't lived through a recession and haven't like actually had the hard, like, like it's really easy to like be cheerleading for your company when they're winning, but what about when they're losing? And so I've seen, I've been on the losing team a lot of times and like know how it feels and know that's when the founder need help. That's when he needs somebody to call. I think, uh, having an investor who's like been through that gauntlet is, is priceless. And I don't think many startup founders are, are asking their VCs how much time, you know, what, what, what was the biggest company you had that shit hit the fan and it was about to crumble. And did you stand by them? What'd you do to help? Were you making YouTube videos nonstop to spread the word so that retail investors could fight back against the short sellers and you could have a, a prayer to raise more capital and be profitable? Like that's when you needed the help. That's when your VC like had to come in. Can we talk about our favorite startups? Let's do it. You want to go first? You go first this time. I've, I feel like I went first the first two times. Okay. Uh, yeah. So my, my startup of the week or, or of the episode is Sandbox VR. So this is a company that uh, makes like VR places to go. You put on a VR headset. I just did this with my friends, put on a VR headset. You have like a gun and you're basically playing a video game and you can, there's all these sorts of games. You're in like a room. They have all these sensors on your hands and feet. 
Um, it was just a wild experience. It was we play this like killing zombies games. I'm not into like guns or zombies and like video gaming at all, but I was like, wow, this is so it was like it felt like we went to the movies, but in a new it was the movies of the future. Like we got out of it, we felt like we were in a movie, we were working together, we're running around this room, it was a good workout, it was active, it was so immersive, so engaging, and I felt like uh, it was the first time that VR and technology felt like it was br bringing people together in a community. And that really made me excited of how can we use technology to bring people together and create shared experiences, not tear us apart. And so it's weird that a VR company would do that, but I think they're onto something huge. And this idea of you're not going to do the metaverse from your home, but you'll go somewhere to do it with better equipment, whether that's for working out, whether that's like physical therapy, like I just think there's so much potential beyond just having fun in video games. And Sandbox VR is interesting because they went through this the COVID, survived despite having a, the worst time to be a, a brick and mortar store. You have to close everything. They survived. They've gotten through it. They're crazy busy. They developed their own games in house. So, um, and we had a call with them. They like, we can't invest because they're not raising right now. But like, you know, um, we're tr we're trying to network. And I was just like. Uh, I don't know. That's a really cool company that's just doing something very new. And when we talk about them, like SpaceX, having no competition, like there's kind of people doing what they're doing, but nobody, it's so vertically integrated. There's so many layers to it. That's another business where it's like their biggest competition is themselves. Like, okay, it's like 50 or a hundred bucks for you to do this thing. Like, is it fun enough for you to do it and tell all your friends about it? Yes. And it, and it's not even what it really could be yet. So, and they have insane investors, insane capital, legendary founder, like, uh, so I don't know. I think that was a really cool. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was exciting. I love that you said that it's like going to the movies for the first time because I feel like that's like such like a memorable experience and it like shows the breadth of like a new technology. You're like it's like going to the movies like such a core like human experience, but like this is the new age of that. Like I just I, I love that. Yeah, and I'm and I'm curious like how like is it going to be something that you're going to like. Like, did you, you told your friends, you went with your friends, were your friends that didn't go there, were you like, you got to come with us next time, you know? Yeah. Like, like we, oh, I can't wait till a new game comes out that we could go and try it. Like, it's one of those things that's like, you would just want to keep coming back. Like, it's such a cool experience. Yeah. The FOMO, I mean, did we you, said did, we wanted to go back every week right after we did it. We haven't done that, but that's because it's traveling and stuff. But like, and then all our friends who didn't go had massive FOMO. Um and it was like our whole highlight of our week. Like we planned it. It was like a Wednesday afternoon. One homie books it. Uh, we're like, all right, we're going to all like cram in the Tesla. We're going to drive over there. Like it's like we're like all like so excited the whole day. And it was like a whole – it was like the highlight of all of our weeks. Yeah, that's one where I, like, I love to see as a customer. And as a customer, I was like, this is a game changer. I'm not even a gamer and I like this. So, so, so my one question is do you think it will be bigger than the movie industry one day? Yeah. Dude, I'm never going to a movie again. Like, that's such a joke to me. Like, the movies. I don't know. I Maybe it's just not my thing, but, like... Do you see people watching movies in VR, or just, like, this is just for games? That's a good question. There's something nice about just sitting down and just, like, letting a TV do everything. So I, I think that'll stay. But, yeah, um, I don't know. I'm kind of curious your take on uh, Sandbox. So I haven't done sandbox specifically, but I will say that I did do some VR the other day with my brother and I had the exact same sensation of like, we talked about it for days after we like left the venue and we're like high, like going through different parts of it. And like, it was like conversational and there was 
probably the closest that we felt like he, my brother was in town for the weekend was like during that time, then like the, like, you know, like one of the most memorable experiences of the weekend, because it was like, you were so present, you were like interacting with each other. So I don't know, like I've been super skeptical of VR and this was the first experience I've had. Like you said, that VR is bringing people together and it's creating shared experiences. And I feel like I've never felt that way about VR until I did this kind of like interactive game in like a shared space. Yeah, no, it's definitely like, yeah, I agree so much. Like so many experiences with VR is just like, I have a headache. I wasn't dope. And this is finally the moment right? where it was fun for everybody and we're all loving it. So I feel like that is just to me, it's like, this is worth taking note. And the whole idea of like more time in the metaverse, like, is it behind a computer or is it active? Like, I just think they're pushing on this really big boundary of the human experience in a digital space and blending the physical and digital. And that's like everything of where I see the future going. Totally. Yeah. Blending the physical and that, that was the key part of the experience. It's like having all the camera and sensors in the physical space that you're in and like actively moving around. Like for me, that was like every time I've tried VR before that, it's always been at like someone's home and you just put on the headset and you're just kind of like, you feel like isolated from everyone else in the room where it's like when everyone's in the VR room and everyone is kind of interacting with each other in the space. It's like, it just enhances everything. I, yeah. I can pitch you on the startup because I don't think I pitched you on this one yet. Okay. So Fount Bio is changing the way that we monitor our, our healthcare. So I'll, I'll start with the founder, Andrew has been kind of, he's been designated by the US Army as a mad scientist. He worked with Navy SEALs to get them prepped, to send them off to do like excursion missions to like improve that the way they perform. Crazy background. He ended up working on like performance for like sports organizations, the Miami Heat. So this company, Fount Bio right now is working on a high-end product for like executives or athletes where they charge $5,000 a month right now. And they already have tons of paying customers um, to basically take all this data on your body. So how your organs are functioning, how your blood's functioning, um, your like sugar levels. It's the most comprehensive data set over like a three month time period. And then you have like a, a Navy SEAL assigned to you that can then give you insights on how to change things. And it's using these insights to try to create an AI algorithm to recommend you things. Once they figure out what Andrew would recommend at these times, like he did for all these peak performers that he was doing at like the heat or the Dodgers. Now their software, I like put it into software so it can scale. Um, and eventually you're like, it start with the high end product, but eventually this could be something that they want to scale. to like a $30 a month SaaS product. And that's what they're working towards. And yeah, it's just like, they're working with the head of product at like Instagram. They're working with all these executives and it's like a concierge red, red carpet service and the goal is to scale it. Yeah. This is so cool. And it's like all the, uh, the biohackers are on the other end of the spectrum where these, like everyone's using the diabetes patch to monitor glucose and then putting their own software on top of that, like levels and NutriSense. And that's one end of the spectrum versus like continuous monitoring versus this is like go in and get all the tests and then we give the data but it's the same thing of like empowering you to know your data like i don't know any of the stats in my body right now but there's so many stats like my hydration my blood this and that like i don't know i don't even know but there's so much that i feel like i'm not in control of that i get a snapshot i get a picture of when i go to the doctors once every six months and it's Wait, like that's such is, a bad way to like yeah 
But even when you go to the doctor, you get just like such a, just one blip in time, right? You're saying and it's not comprehensive. And it's like, you're checking on like your bank account or like all this other data all the time on your phone, but you're not checking on your health. Like when the most important things of all the different data and how you're doing. And so like, they send you all these hardware devices, like the levels, like the aura ring, all the, these things to monitor your sleep. And then their app like aggregates all this data. So it's like creating this like comprehensive thing and then insights over time and the recommendations for you to try things. Oh, you should meditate. Oh, try skipping breakfast in the morning, these three days. Oh, try adding breakfast. So they're trying, and they think that like everything should be personalized. So it shouldn't be this generalist thing, like don't eat breakfast or eat breakfast. It should be like, let's see how your body reacts and then we'll tell you what to do. Wow. And I love this. Uh, so my, I got my mom on athletic greens, you know, the nutrient thing. So I'm, but I'm thinking um, like athletic greens yep. has got to go in with this. Like, how does that affect your body? How do all my stats change? And my mom was like, it just makes me feel really bad. Like I'm overwhelmed by a full scoop. Like I take like a third of a scoop and I love it. And I'm like, wait, like, why is Athletic Greens the same for every person? You're going to tell me if you're 6'5", 300 pounds versus my mom who's super tiny that they should get the same amount of every nutrient? Like, no way. It should be adapted. So even, like, Athletic Greens, which I think is so cutting edge and awesome, I'm like, they haven't figured out to tell you to scale your portion based on weight. Like, that should be a no-brainer. And the second you get the, the data on your body, you're like, wait, your levels are out of whack. Like, well, I think what you said is, like, every startup, there's no comps, right? You have that theory. Like, every person is unique. You know, we're not all the same. So it's like everything, like everything is personalized. Everything is unique. And so it's like, you can't just do these generalist solutions and the people that can get more data on things and create like their own robust kind of analysis and understanding, like that's where the world's heading. Every startup is unique. Every person is unique. And it's almost like if you, if you were an, an investing analogy, it's like Warren Buffett gets his like SEC report once every six months, 50 years ago, it gets like one snapshot of a picture of a company versus like you literally looking at their bank account in real time, you know, and revenue flowing in, in real time. It's just like night and days for terms of analyzing anything. It's like a still picture that's taken once every six months or a video that's always running. What's going to give you a better sense of what's happening. And so I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about this revolution in medicine. And I think, uh, there's so much obvious low hanging fruit when it comes to health of like, I'm like getting like weirdly dehydrated after I have like some sort of food, like that should be a really simple thing to know. And like that food's giving me headaches, but like, I have no data. Like when I'm trying a new protein powder, like how does my body react? Like there's so much data that we're just blind to, um, that is. I don't know. I think, I think a big revolution is coming here. Totally. And I think a lot of people are trying to, everyone talks about preventative medicine, like our healthcare in the U S is backwards. We wait till acute things happen and try to deal with it. So someone that can find a way to solve getting more data on people over long periods of time, like that, that, that data, first of all, is going to be a gold mine. When I, when I talked to Andrew, the, the founder of this company found, he said that this data, so they're trying to get 5,000 people on this high end product. They think mm -hmm. that will have give them the insights that they need then to create like a SaaS product of it essentially. And so he, he said like that data set alone of 5,000 people over like a long period of time across all these different metrics, that's like worth a billion dollars in and of itself. No one's generated that data set. You know, people are paying money to get that data. They're actually getting paid to get that data. Like it's mind blowing. Yeah. I don't know that, but like the devil's advocate in my brain is like, okay, you have a set of data that's worth a billion. Like, no, it's not like if it's worth a billion, get a billion in revenue for it. Like, don't just tell me your data sets worth a lot without making, like, it's not worth anything until you get money from it. I don't know. I don't like that kind of like 
because there's a lot of businesses like that where it's like the value's in the data and then yeah they never like that. they like just that's like just that's business lingo that's a powerpoint slide you know totally it's like a... well like what can you really do with that data like that's like show us the value do not just say that it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a billion dollar valuable like, data tesla's like... getting billions of miles of data and now they're making their fsd better and now they're charging more so like yep. we have a path to like see how that data gets monetized but if you don't have a path to that monetization like they're already monetizing the data it's people those five thousand high-end clients paying whatever you know they're already monetizing that so um yeah you need that's a cool one though yeah, you need the tangibility. Yeah. Because um, I would say, like, Waymo would argue that they have a billion dollars worth of data. But, like, it's, you know, nobody's paying for it. So it's Yeah, sh show us the bridge between the data that you're connecting and how that's going to result in, like, tangible benefits to the company. Like, that's, yeah. Like, that, that's when the, this data set becomes valuable. And I think that's another insight of, like, how we think about founders. It's like, is this something that is your theory that's a promise you're making? Or is there, like, real, like, stuff backing that up? Like you just saying your thing is worth this much is just you just saying that people paying mm -hmm. you a certain price and then us being like, well, if that many people pay you, then that's kind of like, yeah. Let me, let me tell you about one more then. Okay. So Aviato is started by Eric Zhu, who's a 14 year old freshman who kind of during the pandemic got into like tech Twitter and discord and was popping up all these different chats and basically consumed, like basically got a, an education and startup and entrepreneurship on the internet. He's launched companies, he's launched products, he's built communities. He's like a, a rock star that's been educated by the internet. And he created this company that he's already raised like a few hundred thousand dollars for called Aviato, where it's basically helping VC funds use their software to create a personalized form for startups to submit their pitches to. And he's already getting like signups from like the biggest VC funds. Everyone wants to use it. And it's basically like VC funds are going to be the customers. They're going to create these personalized forms, whether it's video, questionnaires, whatever it is. And then they can use that to have founders pitch them in their unique way. And so I guess he's like releasing the beta product next week. So I don't know if we'll get access, but Eric, if you're watching this, dude, we'd love to check it out and see what it's like. So super exciting. Yeah, it sounds like a big need. And then I checked it out. I was like, okay, Aiden's got this 14-year-old entrepreneur. And then you Google it and you're like, wait, like it looks really legit on Twitter. It's super well done. They have like the great logo. They're already like putting out the teaser tweets. Like I'm like every other startup we have should be taking notes on how this guy is launching his brand on the internet. Like, you know, regardless of whether the product's even dope. But I'm like, for that, it already caught my interest. And I don't know. I just love that story. And they called it Aviato, which is like a joke based on the Silicon Valley show, Ehrlich Bachman's first company, Aviato. So it's like, this guy's killing it, honestly. I'm like, wow. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. You just told me that before this call. So I haven't had a chance to look into it more than like 10 minutes. But like, I thought that was worth mentioning on the podcast just because it's like, damn, we got a 14-year-old founder. Like this guy seems like somebody to watch, you know, like they're only getting younger, you know, it's like Zuckerberg was 20. Like, <laughs> there's going to be a 14 year old founder who builds a billion dollar company. I'm not saying it's this guy, but like, I'm, I don't want to count that out, you know? Wow. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. <laughs> they're only getting younger, those billionaire founders. No. And yeah, like and the it, outlier, like the, the, that one, you know, totally. It's like, why can't there be? You know, like what's stopping someone who just gets the game? And I will say when I yeah. spoke to when I spoke to Eric, I like couldn't stop laughing because I was so impressed. He, I mean, he he seemed like he was in a seasoned executive. He sounded better than some executives that are like 50 years old. Swear to God. Like he just like the standard lines, the way he reacted to things, like the chill factor. It was like 
this guy's been doing it for like several decades. It was like, he's just been living on the internet and taking in how people do things and just like had the playbook and was like, it's all he knew was just like, but it's like, not it like, like luck. It, it's like, no, no, this is kind of our hustle. theory. It's like hyper change. It's like, okay, you're the hustle is the limit of your potential. This guy's putting in two years of hustle work on the internet. He's young AF with an open mind, able to like learn. And that's exactly our theory is the internet democratizes learning. Like, there's going to be people that are 12 or 14 that are super advanced and able to comprehend it and soak in that knowledge and execute on it. And that's right. like kind of the theory of hyperchange is, is like the internet is democratizing knowledge. And so, yeah. So to me, it's like this actually just, it lines up like, um, and it's like winners win. That's one of my favorite mottos. It's like, you see, like Elon Musk, like, it's just so simple, like winners win. And they keep arcing. Like this guy doesn't, uh, you, I don't know. I'm, I I think it's a feel good story, and it's kind of what makes why I love the startup world because it's like they think it's this kind of closed off ecosystem, da da da. But it's like you do got to play the game. You got to learn how to VC works. But if you are like nobody cares where you come from or how old you are if you're doing the if you're walking the walk, like you know. And so that that kind of makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think what's super interesting, like winners win. Like anyone can learn anything on the internet. Before, like, the internet unlocks the most genius people in society, right? It's like never before could someone go on the internet and learn how to code, learn how startups and VC work. But now it's like people who are interested and curious, you just let the mind go onto the internet and, like, it can flourish. And it's, like, such a beautiful this thing to see when you see, like, these young kids who just, like, have, like, this innate curiosity for it. And their potential is just, like, untapped. And yeah, it's like before everyone was hindered by just what was around them. But since the internet is unlimited, like you always say about Ethereum, it's the limit of your imagination. The internet is the limit of like your imagination. It's like these kids now are have like unlimited potential and it's super exciting. Yeah, and even like that Ethereum note, it's like, that's why I love Ethereum. Cause it's almost like building on the internet without permission. Like if you, you can just code it and deploy it and nobody can stop, like your parents can't tell you no. Cause like it just happened. And so I think that's going to be a really awesome thing for innovation is we've already seen a lot of stories of like, you know, uh, teenagers and young kids who learn how to code, making a ton of money on the ETH blockchain and just being entrepreneurs and nobody permissionless deployment of code. Uh, it's kind of a true democratization of how good your code is with, with Ethereum and stuff. And so I think this is just the norm. It's we're just going to see innovators, uh, you know, if you have 8 billion people, like these outliers are going to get are it's easier for them to start like gaining traction on their career earlier. I, I think like one quote I keep coming back to is this line from Kevin Kelly that everyone's a noob nowadays. Like you're always like, there's new tools that are constantly mm. coming out. Like we're recording on Riverside. We both had to learn it like Squarespace, whatever it is. Like you're just, your ability to be a noob and learn new t tools is like the name of the game that we're going to have to operate in. This is why like the next generation is so hip because they can learn the new tools faster and faster. So it's like the younger generation has a unique advantage because they're used to like constantly learning the hip thing to like fit in and be with things. But as you get older, you're like, oh, I don't want to download this app or I don't want to try TikTok. You get jaded. But it's like, no, like the, the secret sauce is like, can you download the new app? Can you learn things? How good is your ability to learn and try new things? Like that's like, that's where it's at. Yeah. The adaptability is kind of the alpha. Um, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's I good. feel it. I feel it. I see it coming. Uh, no, I think this has been great. I think a lot of, uh, 
I'm excited because I think now we're going to like honing in on how we, what check size we writing, how we do the SPV model with the, with the checks. Um, I think it's awesome. And I'm personally most stoked because I feel like the annoying fundraising parts behind us and we didn't get into the fun game to just like meet with LPs and like fundraise. Like, I mean, that's what you got to do, but we got in this game to like find the amazing founders and back them and talk to them and help them. And now we get to do that because we have the fund. And so, um, I'm stoked. I'm stoked to be able to start sharing like what these crazy people who are funding are up to. So one thing that I do like want to like, just make sure that we cover too is our check size. You know, you talked a little bit about that briefly, how many companies we want to back 25 to 30 companies and then two buckets of conviction. Is it 125 K and a 250 K check? We got to decide those numbers. But I think that is where my head is at is there's different levels of conviction. And one of the reasons we want the fund is for flexibility for super small, quick checks and stuff that's riskier and earlier stage. So we need to have a framework for super quick, early risky, but more established. So we're going to put more capital in that. And then finding that balance is something that we're going to work through. Um, and I don't want to do it on the fly. Like, and I think we've already, like before we even make our first investment, because we're getting close to that, we're already now crystallizing that formula, which I think is good. And so I feel like maybe by next call, we'll have like the final formula, but I also like, like think that it needs to be a loose rule that like if founders are listening, like we still need to be able to write 25 K checks if that is what happens. And so there's always flexibility to it, but I think us having our strategy of like 25 to 30 companies, like doubling down a little bit more on the ones that are more zero to one and have their business model figured out a little late later stage is kind of the sweet spot. Yeah. 25 to 30 companies that like two check sizes, but like having that flexibility and, and being able to move quickly. Like we experienced it when we were talking about making our potential first investment. Like it shouldn't have to be like how much are we writing? It should be pretty quick. Like which bucket does it fall into? And like, let's not like, we shouldn't be having to figure it out every single time. Exactly. And I think that's on our end going to save us a lot of time. It's like, we already have the, like we already know they're in this bucket, they're this check size, this is how we're going to run it and have that processify it. Like we want to processify how the startups hit us up with those metrics. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of exciting because it was more with the syndicate. It was like, what deal popped up on my desk that is just too good to pass up that I want to write a check in versus now we have a big chunk of money. How do we deploy it and create a portfolio? So that's a different switch in mindset and takes more planning, but, um, and I'm exciting. super excited. Like, like when you think about like, okay, it's like this hyperglop Atlantis, it's 25 startups. So we get it back. Right. It's like, so how do we structure that? Like, okay, these companies might fall into like deep tech, like high risk. These might be like a little bit later stage software, like more like, like less risk. And it's like interesting to think like, as we start to like structure the portfolio, just thinking about it strategically as we go through the process. And I think that's going to be like a fun part of it too, is like building this like thoughtful portfolio, um, while also in, they're judging each company like individually. Like, I think there's a dynamic a balance there, which is like, yeah, we can, each company should be judged on its own merits, like a one of one, like you're saying, but then also it's like, okay, but let's think about this strategically, how much are in kind of like series a, like that kind of more kind of product market fit revenue up into the right, how much are earlier stage that we're taking a risk. So we feel like we have like a really balanced portfolio that we're, we're happy with. Elon Musk has this quote about like, uh, how like if you don't build stuff there's no stuff or like everyone kind of thinks the future happens but it's actually like you got to build it and so i think that's something i've been thinking of it's like well we can't design like the company that we want to change the food system like 
maybe there's nobody building it. So we can't just like wait for that. Like we have to like see where these entrepreneurs are and like, like push them to run. I think that, I think that the like top down approach does not work. And I don't like that. Like, oh, like we're smart enough to decide that this industry needs disruption. So we're going to build a company to do it. Like, I think all those companies, which a lot of them have raised a lot of VC funding, a lot of them have even gone public. I think a lot of them will crumble because they haven't like, it's just the wrong way to build a company, like designing it in your head, thinking you're smarter than the market versus having like a founder who's obsessed and like pushing him and like kind of like giving him more like win behind his sales versus like trying to build a whole new ship and point it in a direction and put a captain on it. It's like, I want to find a captain who has a ship and push him. And that's so, um, our job is to kind of like find those people within our sweet spot and push them. Because if you told me the call we had on Friday, I would have been like, I mean, I don't know. Okay. Like, yeah, it's a big industry, huge potential, but like, you know, what's okay. Like, but then it's like, oh, we met the guy who has the team, who has the game plan, who's already solving it, who's doing this. Like, we just need to push him a little bit, and then he's going to have a real shot at doing that whole thing. Like, finding what exists in the world and then, like, making it sure it goes in, like, the right direction. Yeah. Well, awesome stuff, Aiden. I'm stoked to uh, continue this next week. Keep it doing yeah, it. Until dude. then, you and me, we're making moves. The people don't know. Even between episodes, moves are being made. Moves are always being made. Moves right, are dude. always being made. Um, yeah. And we still got ch time to invest in the fund. If you're listening and you haven't invested yet, we're about, we're closing like imminently, but we do have spots left and you can always join the syndicate to see our deal flow. Um, and yeah, thanks for tuning in everybody. Thanks everyone. All right. Peace. Cheers. Cheers. Peace.